my topic is to give you an update on upfront and maintenance therapy and follicular lymphoma. And uh, these are my disclosures. I will mention um, a couple of uh, drugs from some of these companies, mostly around uh, Celgene and Genentech Roche, so by way of uh, pre-warning. So I think there are several aspects as you look at a uh, follicular lymphoma patient. Uh, and I'm going to kind of walk you through how I look at the various issues uh, and the different scenarios as I think about when to treat a patient, how to treat a patient, and do I do maintenance. So the first question, obviously, in follicular lymphoma is what follicular lymphoma patients need treatment. And I think that many of us could look at the same patient and have different answers as to exactly when on the continuum of watch and wait to obvious therapy someone needs to uh, I hate to say pull the trigger, but at least make the decision to uh, initiate therapy. And so there is clearly a very gray area that depends on the perspective of the physician and hopefully, most importantly, the perspective of the patient. There are certainly uh, scenarios where everyone would agree that a patient needs treatment. We have some criteria mostly divided or devised for clinical trials so that if we looked at a trial and said, yes, these people meet the, this criteria, we would all see that they all needed treatment. It wouldn't be some contrived scenario where we treated a bunch of uh, people who didn't need treatment with our new regimen. We got a great result and said this is the greatest thing uh, ever in a bunch of people who didn't need any treatment at all. So I think we would all agree or mostly agree that patients with high tumor bulk s symptoms, uh, certain laboratory value, values, rapid progression, uh, and other parameters are summarized here, generally are going to meet the criteria of needing treatment. And that is not necessarily because they meet the criteria, but because they are likely to have clinical issues that we would want to do something about at the time that we're seeing the patient. Now, the other aspect of this, which does not generally help our decision to initiate treatment, is the prognostic information that we have. And so FLIPI scores, or the follicular lymphoma IPI, which includes number of nodal sites, uh, stage, high LDH, hemoglobin age, uh, can prognosticate for a patient but doesn't necessarily tell you that the patient needs treatment, although, of course, uh, patients with some of these parameters, particularly extensive disease, anemia, might be scenarios where uh, that person would have factors that would need uh, treatment uh, on a clinical basis. And you can see that this summarizes imperfectly patients into different uh, risk groups. And so there have been attempts to uh, refine this with the M7 Flippy, and this takes a couple of clinical parameters. You can see this on the left, high-risk Flippy disease, impaired performance status, and then you look at, if you have access to this, gene mutations and various gold mutations there uh, listed in the bar graph are unfavorable. A few blue mutations are favorable, such as EZH2 mutations, which is interesting that we have an EZH2 inhibitor in trials, and yet easy, mutated EZH2 is actually a good prognostic uh, thing in follicular lymphoma. What this basically does is take the patients that are high risk and really refines that group to a way that we could say these are really people in the gold uh, on the right upper Kaplan-Meier curve these are really people who are not going to do as well and where we really need to think about um, novel approaches. That being said, the M7 Flippy as the Flippy as well don't really in and of themselves tell you it's time to treat a patient. 
So then we move on, and this is just one general framework, which is somewhat intuitive, but I think you're going to look at the patient. You're going to decide if they have localized disease based on their staging. You're going to look at their symptoms and put them into categories of watch and wait, radiotherapy in localized disease settings, maybe single-agent rituximab or combination treatments, which are typically going to be patients that have more significant disease, more symptomatic disease. But again, it's not so easy to put a patient into one category or another. And I would also say that the, the consequences of under-treating or perhaps over-treating are not quite clear. So there are patients who I would perhaps give our chemo to or, or combination treatment to, and the patient wants to get single-agent treatment, and I say, okay, we can try that as long as you know that it might not work and we may uh, be giving you your second-line treatment sooner. So first, just a minute or two on limited-stage follicular lymphoma, and um, I tend to wax a little philosophical about this because I think that the, the story out there, and I mentioned this um, in uh, the discussion with Steve Coutre about CLL and, and Cami Maddox about CLL yesterday, the concept of curing patients, I think is one that uh, I'm my perspective on this continually evolves. The, the dogma is that you can cure patients with follicular lymphoma with limited stage disease with radiation. And um, the question is, yes, that probably happens. How often does it happen? Does other, do other treatments do the same thing? I think it's hard to say. And this is an experience from John Friedberg, not a randomized trial from the Lymphocare study, saying that basically patients uh, that are rig- rigorously staged, no matter how you treat them, tend to do pretty well. Um, but that it, if you treat them more, they'll have a longer progression-free survival. And if you treat them less, uh, they'll have a, a, a shorter progression-free survival. But at the end of the day, overall survival seems to be pretty similar. And so uh, the question that comes up often in follicular lymphoma is this choice between PFS and OS and the discordance between such that basically says you can be more or less aggressive. And I think the concept of cure in these patients uh, is quite uh, complex. And I think if you're really doing your patient a favor, you really have to present both sides of this. What does this mean, cure? And how often is it likely to happen? And what that the fact, the pros and cons of attempting a cure versus not, uh, and really how often again this happens. So I just put this out there with one one study that was published in JCO just last year, which was a randomized trial. And there are very few randomized trials in limited stage follicular lymphoma. 150 patients uh, with a median follow up of 10 years. So patients were followed a long time. By necessity, a long follow-up means that some patients had PET scans to stage them and some didn't because practice changed over that time. These were mostly stage one patients. And they were treated with radiation alone or radiation with chemotherapy, RCVP or CVP. Ten years of follow-up, you see the 10-year progression-free survival quite quite good, better with more therapy, 59% versus 41%. Um, and again, the more treatment you gave, if you gave rituximab with the chemotherapy, if they had less disease, if you staged them by PET so that you really knew that they were limited stage, uh, those patients did better, not surprisingly. But the overall survival was quite similar and was quite good. So again, the pros and cons of treating somebody with RCVP when they really don't urgently need it uh, or our chemo when they don't urgently need it, 
and could perhaps kick that can down the road uh, several years, uh, you know, perhaps 10 years in many cases to get whatever's going to be on our plate in 10 years um, with a similar overall survival, I think is really, um, to me, not a compelling argument to add systemic treatment. But on the other hand, if you purely want to improve progression-free survival, there's no doubt that giving somebody treatment now uh, will, in follicular lymphoma, mean that their next treatment will be a bit longer down the road. So this is how I approach limited-stage follicular lymphoma. I watch and wait with patients. There are data from Stanford suggesting that selected patients who uh, don't get radiation do just fine and often can go 10 years or longer without needing treatment. Uh, so there are some scenarios where I will uh, watch and wait with uh, limited-stage patients. Often these patients have little things on their PET scan that you're not sure what it is, and rather than just treat the patient or chase after it, I tend to watch those patients. I think RT, you've seen the data, uh, depends on the size, the location. Um, I generally do not use combined modality therapy, but I see the uh, pros and cons of that, and one might argue if you were going to do that, maybe rituximab rather than chemo, uh, just because of the fact that, uh, you know, minimal toxicity in something of limited benefit. Uh, And I, again, I try not to overemphasize the concept of cure versus functional cure. Will this patient have to deal with this again in their lifespan if they're uh, older versus younger, and um, you know, there's nothing more frustrating to me than giving radiation to a young person with stage one lymphoma and then having them relapse two, three, four years later, and you basically gave them radiation for nothing, and they had the toxicity long term, uh, which might be meaningful uh, for them. So I, I, those stand out in my mind, I must say. Um, but that said, um, that is something that I think we also have to present to the patient. So what about low tumor burden patients? This is kind of the second group. And again, we know that single-agent rituximab for low tumor burden patients can be quite useful. This is four doses uh, and an observation. I tell patients you can get about two years uh, progression-free survival. Some patients do much longer. Again, the best way to improve progression-free survival in follicular lymphoma or any lymphoma is not do scans. So um, if you scan your patient, they will relapse sooner. If you don't scan your patient, um, they will not die sooner, uh, and uh, they will be in remission longer. So I think uh, you can do a lot with not scanning patients. Uh, yes, it makes you work a little harder, but it makes the patient work a little less harder. So um, that's something I would just keep in mind. Single-agent rituximab is something I use both up front and in the relapse setting uh, pretty routinely um, because I think that, again, you add drugs, you add toxicity, it works better, um, but there's often little downside other than the time, et cetera, involved to uh, treat the patient and uh, see if you can get some good mileage out of single-agent rituximab. I still watch and wait with patients. This goes back to uh, over five years. Uh, Yes, if you treat a patient immediately with rituximab, they will go. They can go a long period of time. On the other hand, if you uh, just watch that patient for several years and then treat them with single-agent rituximab in several years or whatever you decide to treat them with in several years, they can do quite well uh, also, and the overall survival is the same and transformation is the same. So I don't push to do early single-agent rituximab in the absence of indications for treatment. So if you choose single-agent rituximab once a patient has indications for treatment, and and that, again, often is in the eye of the the patient, uh, meaning, you know, can be cosmetic, 
can be uh, symptoms of some sort or another. Um, the resort trial tells us that there's not a lot of value to maintenance. Uh, if you use single-agent rituximab, you can retreat the, the uh, patient uh, if they progress, they will progress a little sooner if you don't use maintenance, um, but you can do the same thing again and get good mileage out of that as well. So I tend to, if I'm using single-agent rituximab, not use maintenance uh, based on the resort trial. So this is my uh, approach to low tumor burden, advanced stage follicular lymphoma. I think, again, watch and wait is fine. I try very hard with a new patient to let them watch and wait for a while so they can understand the disease, become familiar with it, get used to things a little bit because it's going to be a long-term uh, hitchhiker for this patient, uh, and to get a sense of the pace of the disease over time, uh, and uh, also for me to get to know the patient who presumably, unless they go somewhere else, I'll know for a long time and like to get a sense of what's going to happen. Uh, I use a lot of single-agent rituximab uh, once these patients develop some symptoms. But again, chemoimmunotherapy or some other combination is certainly reasonable uh, and will give a longer remission. Uh, and low tumor burden patients, I tend not to treat with combined modality therapy, but again, I go through the pros and cons, and a lot of this is, is style uh, based on your perspectives uh, of the literature. So what about advanced stage disease or patients that need treatment? I think it's well known to you that adding rituximab to chemotherapy improves survival. So clearly, if you need therapy uh, with chemotherapy, adding rituximab has benefit. Um, that's well established. Benamustine rituximab versus R-CHOP in the absence of transformation uh, seems to have similar outcomes, perhaps better progression-free survival with BR, less toxicity, though. Again, it's kind of picking your toxicity profile, but alopecia often stands out for people as well as uh, uh, avoiding anthracycline for a time. Overall survival is the same, so I tend to use a fair amount of benamustine rituximab in, in these patients. We know that in Prima, maintenance rituximab after RCHOP or RCVP improves PFS, but not overall survival. So you can look at this in two ways. You can look at this as PFS is better, so we should do it, and there are a fair number of patients on that blue curve who are 10 years out and not relapsed, and maybe some of them are cured. Maybe some of them will go long-term. Remembering this is only whenever you look at, and, and you saw that in the last talk, whenever you look at maintenance versus no maintenance, remember that's only the responders that made it onto that curve. So it's not all patients that walk into your clinic. These are people that responded, and now the question is maintenance. So we've weeded out on these curves the least favorable patients who progressed early or didn't respond. So keep that in mind when you look at maintenance, no maintenance curves. That said, um, if you're facing a patient who's in remission, uh, you can see that they can do pretty well with a maintenance regimen. Um, on the other hand, you know, my take is that that makes a big difference for 15% of people uh, if you look at the vertical difference on these curves. Uh, and so, uh, you know, it's a, particularly with overall survival being the same and the opportunity to retreat people with uh, maintenance with rituximab at progression, I think it's an individualized decision. So I, I offer people maintenance, uh, but I don't push it, and most of my patients uh, tend not to opt for it, um, perhaps reflecting my biases. But again, um, I think it's reasonable to do as long as you know what you're getting out of it and what you're not getting out of it. So we have the gallium study that's uh, come along. I think uh, many of you may be familiar with this. This looked at using the novel 
or newer obinutuzumab. Uh, instead of rituximab, this required that patients got chemo with the anti-CD20 antibody, either G or obinutuzumab with the chemotherapy or R rituximab, and then, again, required maintenance. So if you're applying these data to your patient, it basically says you've decided that maintenance is what you're going to do, and you can decide whether or not that's what you want to do. Um, but the data really are applying to people who uh, opted or who are opting for maintenance from the get-go, and I tend to like to decide that later. Uh, although, uh, obviously, that's a matter of style. And so you see what I would say is a modest improvement in progression-free survival if you choose the newer anti-CD20 versus the older, uh, and overall survival being the same. So, again, glass half full, glass half empty. You can take your, your choice there. Um, and it seemed like there was a, a benefit in PFS regardless of the chemo, so your chemo shouldn't influence necessarily which one of these antibodies you use. Um, based on these data. Um, one thing to note is that the uh, obinutuzumab seem to have higher rates of adverse events. I think there are more infusion reactions, and there were more infections, particularly after bendamustine. And so that has led some people to argue that maybe you shouldn't use maintenance after bendamustine, maybe you shouldn't use obinutuzumab maintenance after bendamustine. I think we don't fully know the answer to that, but I think you have to keep that in mind that uh, maintenance uh, is not uh, necessarily a free ride. Um, on the other hand, there's a little bit more MRD negativity, and if MRD negativity correlates with outcome, then um, one might argue that we should do what we can to get patients to be MRD negative because they will probably do better. Um, but that said, um, uh, that remains, this remains largely an investigational uh, question. The other aspect is PET, and um, you could argue that if you do something that gets pa patients PET negative, that correlates with a better outcome. These are, this is one uh, series uh, looking, um, and there are flaws to this series because not all patients got PET. Um, but that said, um, that uh, a negative PET at the end of treatment seems to correlate with a better outcome. So that may or may not influence your choice of maintenance, and I think this uh, FOL12 study uh, led out of Europe is an interesting way of looking at it. The standard arm, and I think this is the best way, is to say we're going to do the standard thing versus a novel thing basically says the standard is if you go into remission, we're going to give you our maintenance. If you don't go into remission, you get more therapy, and they've decided that that's their standard, which is fine, versus the experimental arm that says basically uh, PET negative, MRD negative, maybe you don't need any maintenance, so we'll watch you, or we'll, uh, and then if you're PET negative, MRD positive, those are the people who need more therapy and will get rituximab, and those that are PET positive uh, get a more intensive approach with radioimmunotherapy. So I think this is one way to answer the question, who should get more therapy if anybody should get more therapy. Now, I'll also uh, highlight the relevance study because we have another option. This has uh, uh, been published in the New England Journal last year, R-squared or lenalidomide rituximab versus chemo-rituximab. Uh, over the course of uh, around two years or so, you can see the regimen, uh, and just over two years, essentially saying, can you use lenalidomide rituximab instead of our chemo? And the net of this is that while it was designed as a superiority study uh, and therefore is a negative study for its primary endpoint, uh, the net is that the overall response rate, it was the same. The CRCRU at 120 weeks was the same, uh, and progression-free survival is the same. So I think it's fair to say that while it's not an uh, equivalence or non-inferiority design, which would have needed many patients, 
Um, it's close enough for follicular lymphoma. We make approximations there all the time, and I think it tells you that this, these two approaches are pretty similar and, and pretty reasonable. And, you know, it really comes down to picking the safety profile you want to have. There's a little more neutropenia with chemotherapy. It's longer with R-squared because you're on it longer. Uh, there's similar febrile neutropenia, a little more with chemo, more, uh, and more rash uh, with R-squared. So you can see at the bottom a summary uh, of kind of which adverse events, rashes, uh, tumor flare, diarrhea, a little more with R-squared, cytopenias, nausea, neuropathy, a little more with our chemo. And again, you have to have this discussion with your patient and uh, see together which uh, makes the most sense or is most manageable for that patient. So to conclude, this is my approach to, or I have one slide after this, uh, uh, higher tumor burden, advanced stage follicular lymphoma, I think bendamustine rituximab. Induction is reasonable. If you're worried about transformation, uh, chase after it with biopsies, but consider our CHOP. I think maintenance rituximabs of limited value, as I alluded to, so it's not routine for me, but it's certainly reasonable if you choose it. Uh, obinutuzumab, I think, is of limited value. Again, not routine. You also don't have the subcutaneous option there, and I think it kind of commits you to uh, a maintenance if you're using the gallium study to inform your choice. And then just one last slide on how to follow patients in remission, and I touched on this earlier. I think you have to tailor, and this is a good rule of thumb for lymphomas in general, tailor the follow-up to risk of relapse. If a patient has a low risk of relapse, you shouldn't be looking very hard for relapse. So in someone with follicular lymphoma who went into a PET-negative CR who's not likely to relapse in the next five years or longer, then doing lots of scans during that five-year time is not likely to yield a whole lot. Uh, and um, your clinical exam and, and talking with the patient will most likely pick up any relapse if it happens. However, if you have a patient who's at higher risk, maybe you do a little more scans because statistically that you're more likely to find something, although, again, the physical exam and history are the key things. So minimize surveillance imaging. And I think because these patients often will live a long time and most of them are not going to die of disease, the more you can let them have a period that's relatively normal, the better for them, although you may have to work a little harder uh, in talking with them and examining them and so on. So with that, I will stop, and we may come back to some of these issues a little bit later.